Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on The Shorter Catechism, where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Parker, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinnenweber. Welcome back, everybody. It's good to have you, and uh, we are looking forward to another podcast interview where we hope to show you that the catechism is for all and useful for all of life. Our guest today is Dr. Sean Michael Lucas from Independent Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee, and he is also a professor of church history at uh, RTS, and I read his book on Presbyterian church history in preparation for my ordination exam. So, Dr. Lucas, thank you for your writings, and also thank you for being here uh, today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Dr. Lucas, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, first, just tell us a little, a little bit about yourself, your family, uh, the role uh, with the church, maybe even the broader church with RTS. Yeah. So presently, I'm senior pastor here at, at IPC. I've uh, been here almost four years. And prior to that, I was senior pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Hasburg, Mississippi. Before that, I worked at Covenant Theological Seminary. So I've uh, kind of had a, a place within our denomination in, in those ways. Um, also, uh, just kind of a Presbyterian nerd. So I end up serving on all kinds of committees and Presbytery stuff and, uh, denominational stuff. And, you know, so, uh, not, I'm not a cradle Presbyterian. So, uh, my parents were converted when I was about 10 ish, uh, in a kind of a non-denominational context, uh, ended up kind of wandering around through Baptist life. Uh, and then it was really uh, part of what brought me into um, the Presbyterian tradition was the catechism. Uh, this because the the church, the Baptist church we were at, was a, a Reformed Baptist church that um, that believed in catechesis. And uh, and so when we started having uh, my wife and I started having our children uh, way back in the day, our kids are now twenty three, twenty one, nineteen, and seventeen. Uh, but we we. Uh, we, we were committed to catechizing our children, which then raised all sorts of questions about, well, what is the status of our children? You know, are they pagan babies? Uh, do they need to be evangelized first? Uh, are we right to catechize them? Uh, and that led us into uh, the, the covenant idea as it's, as it's applied to households and ultimately was the pathway forward to baptism. So in a very real sense, I'm with you today because of the catechism. Yay, catechism. That's what we like to hear here at the, at the shorter. So, I mean, continue on, on that thought about when you were first introduced to the catechism, but also mention how, how it's been helpful to you, maybe, maybe a particular concept or question. How have you seen it being as a pastor, being impactful in people's lives, and maybe even your own children? You know, as me and Stephen, part of this was me and Stephen are like you. We were not raised in a catechism. A, ca- a home with a catechism. And so I feel like I'm catechizing two generations, myself and my children all at once. Yeah. And so, so how have you seen the catechism helpful? Well, certainly for us at, as individuals, my wife and I, for our kids and then in ministry, uh, one of the things that's so helpful with the catechism is that it provides furniture <laughs> for, for various biblical ideas to sit in. Uh, you know, we were uh, raised, both my wife and I, in um, Baptist context, we went to Wana, 
learned lots of verses, uh, which was great. I'm very thankful for my Baptist and even fundamentalist upbringing um, because of all the scripture content. But the problem was we had all these discrete verses wandering around in our heads, but we didn't have the theological furniture to put them in. That's what the catechism does. Uh, it gives us these theological categories. And so with our kids, um, from the time our children were two, uh, we we catechized them using the first catechism, the, the, the kind of children's version of the shorter catechism, uh, and then taught them selected catechism, Westminster shorter catechism questions beyond that as part of their communicants process. And uh, so, you know, even a two-year-old can learn these catechism questions and have furniture uh, for when they're reading the Bible, when they're hearing the word of God preached, um, when they're in a Bible study, when they're at school, talking to other believers from other denominations, they have these, these categories, these pieces of furniture that help make sense of uh, what they're hearing. And also to talk with others, well, you know, or to listen, like I had my youngest coming back from uh, his Bible class at it, he goes to a local Christian school here where he was hearing the teacher say things. He's like, I don't, I don't think that's right. And I was like, well, why don't you think that's right? And he begins to explain and whether he knows it or not, he was explaining in the categories they had learned from learning the catechism. Uh, so hugely, hugely important. When I came here to IPC, um, we didn't have a catechesis program. Uh, and so one of the things that we did uh, about 18 months ago was we completely rejiggered our Wednesday night program uh, to be able to, to supply uh, catechetical instruction uh, for our K through fifth grade uh, covenant kids. Um, and so well, with them, we're using kind of, kind of as a gateway to the shorter catechism, we're using New City Catechism, uh, but as a way of, again, of, of creating theological categories, pieces of furniture in these kids' minds uh, so, that, so that they know, oh, this, when the Bible says this, this is how this all connects together. And yeah, no, it's been helpful, even with my own daughter. I think we left church a month ago, and she's, she told me how. She's like, I know what Pastor Chuck was talking about because of the catechism. And it's just helpful. Right. That. Uh, so do you have a favorite shorter catechism question? Uh, one that you've kind of hung some things on? Yeah. Well, the one that I keep coming back to over and over again, it even showed up in Sunday's sermon is the fourth question. What is God? Mm -hmm. um, those, you know, God is infinitely, eternally, and unchangeable uh, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth. Each of those first three words modifies the other seven, you know, so he's, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness. And when you actually begin meditating on the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable nature, say, of his goodness, or of his justice, uh, or of his holiness, um, that becomes uh, something that you can plumb the depths with. Uh, and uh, that, that's a question that I, when I've taught communicants class, uh, for our kids through the years. That's one I make sure they memorize um, because it, it hangs so many <laughs> uh, things on those pegs uh, in terms of who God is. Uh, another one, though, is what is saving faith, particularly the language of resting and receiving, resting upon and receiving Jesus Christ. That's right in our membership vows uh, when we are when we receive communicant members into our church. And it's, it's a brilliant description of what saving faith is. As evangelicals, we've tended to put the stress upon receiving Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel. Uh, but the, the language of resting upon, uh, which, which speaks in terms of the kind of fiduciary, the, the trust side, uh, 
of belief, um, of reliance upon. Uh, when I've done that in communicants class, I, I'll actually, I'm kind of crazy with the students, but I, I'll actually lay on the table. You know, they see their senior pastor laying on their table and say, what's holding me up? Am I holding myself up? And they say, no. Well, what's holding me up? The table's holding you up. Is any part of me on the ground? No. So I'm utterly reliant upon that table to hold me up. In the same way, we are utterly reliant upon Jesus to rescue us, to save us. Uh, it's a brilliant description of what saving faith is. So those are two that immediately come to mind. That sounded like a little uh, Robert Rayburn. I know that uh, Tommy's a personal fan. And he brought out that same, the three modifying the seven. So, um, yeah, look at that, Tommy. Pretty, pretty cool. Um, so, it, so, Dr. Lucas, you know, in terms of like this theological feng shui, uh, we don't usually ask the question, but um, was there like a part of the catechism that you found was difficult or, you know, kind of trying to bring it all back and piece it all together? Uh, was there a place where the catechism was really helpful in reconciling something that was difficult in your mind? Well, the, the, the catechism questions that we've most wrestled with in our journey towards Presbyterianism were the ones in relationship to, to the sacraments, you know, and, uh, uh, but one of the things that has always been helpful about the catechism in that regard is that it really does represent kind of, a, kind, of kind of small C Catholic Christianity. Uh, it's not as though the catechism is doing anything particularly strange. It really is an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. I mean, when you think about it, um, in ancient forms, medieval forms of catechesis, um, of, of training disciples, uh, the church uh, believed that to be a well-trained disciple, you needed to understand, um, you know, the way of salvation. You needed to understand the Ten Commandments, and you needed to understand the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and when you think about it, that's that's what the catechism is. It's an explanation of the, what's necessary for salvation, um, the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and so in that regard, even thinking about how this catechism is structured uh, has, has kind of provided a spine for, for me, for my family, for our church. Uh, and, 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 and just as a reminder, we're not doing anything strange. Um, the things that we are confessing are the things that are most surely believed among us. It's, it's part of the reason even why we use catechisms as part of our corporate worship. So when I came here, um, we always had a statement of faith. Um, more times than not, it was the, uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, but then sometimes the ministers would um, choose uh, other scriptures and it just felt a little haphazard. Um, so for the last couple of years, we've just worked our way through catechisms. So last year it was the Shorter Catechism. This year it's the Heidelberg Catechism. Next year, because our kids are memorizing, it's going to be the New City Catechism. And we're just going to keep going on a cycle again, because there are those places where people wrestle uh, and the catechisms give great short answers uh, to the, the theological issues that most people struggle with. For us, it was the sacraments uh, and those catechism questions that deal with the sacraments were particularly helpful. Great to hear. And we too use the Heidelberg shorter catechism. We even get the canons of Dordan there sometimes, which is kind of fun to <laughs> swim in that broader theological stream. So Dr. Lucas, uh, the questions that we're going to be talking about today are questions 27 and 28, shorter catechism. I'll read those just to orient our listeners and we'll jump right in. Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, 
and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Question 28, wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, and in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. Uh, these questions we've found uh, really helpful, 23 through 28, talking about the three offices of Christ, but all three of these offices happen both in Christ's humiliation and in his exaltation. So the first question that we might ask is this idea of humiliation. So question 27 says, wherein does his humiliation consist? Humiliation from what, Dr. Lucas? Yeah, but even before we get there to that question, one of the things that we need to think about about these two questions and recognize is they actually are simply the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> I mean, the, the seven descriptors in question 27 are in fact the seven descriptors that you have in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, buried. He descended into the grave or into hell. So in many ways, that's what you've got going on here. He's being born, that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the curse of death of the cross, and being buried and continue under the power of death for a time, which is a better explanation, by the way, of he descended into hell. But then the, the exaltation answers are the four that come after, you know, he he was, um, he was raised from the dead the third day. He sendeth into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. And so, so one of the things we, again, just want to recognize is the catechism is not doing anything innovative right here. Uh, it actually is representing small c Catholic Christianity. And I think that's a really important apologetic point when you're talking to your friends and neighbors and they're like, wait, you're Presbyterian? Aren't they come some kind of weird cult? Uh, that's what my father-in-law thought you know, when we were becoming Presbyterian, you know, we were joining some kind of weird cult. No, we're, we're just, we're part of uh, kind of universal Christianity. You know, I mean, this, we confess the things that are most truly believed among Christians. You know, Christians really do believe though, that there is this movement down, you know, that, that the, 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 the eternal son of God condescended uh, and he condescended by leaving his throne uh, his glory, uh, and uh, not grasping that, Philippians 2, uh, but but took upon himself the form of a man uh, and became obedient to death, even death of cross. In many ways, to get back then to the question, um, humiliation from what? Well, ultimately, it's humiliation from his rightful place as the eternal son of God, uh, clothed with power and glory, uh, is, is part of uh, this this eternal life that the Trinity has known uh, before time began, uh, the second person of the Godhead said, you know, condescended and was humiliated. Um, and, and really, when you think about, you know, in being born, I mean, I mean it's, it's kind of mind-blowing uh, that the, the Lord of life himself, uh, the one who is eternal, uh, who is consubstantial with the Father, who is a is of the same stuff, the same essence as the Father, the same being as the Father, uh, not similar to, not different than, but the same being as the Father, eternal, actually is born. 
you know, it, it dwells in Mary's womb for nine months. And, you know, at the, at the end of his life, he dwells in the womb of the tomb for three days. Uh, but, but nine months in Mary's womb, the eternal son of God from conception, God and man coming together in that way. It's, it's really remarkable. And it's the beginning of that condescension that, that Christ experiences on behalf of his people. Yeah, a very different set of accommodations seated at the right hand of God, and then in the womb of a virgin for nine months. Uh, yeah. A lot of humiliation going on there. Thank you. Now, you, I think that was super helpful, tying this to the Apostles' Creed, and that what we're confessing is not inconsistent with the broader confession of the Lower Sea Catholic Church. But this idea of being made under the law may be somewhat unfamiliar to those who are coming to this question for the first time. So, Dr. Lucas, what does it mean that Jesus was made under the law. Yeah, so that's a clear reference to Galatians 4, um, where Paul writes, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, made under the law. Uh, And that's particularly in his role as the Messiah. So that gets back to the framing point that you made, that these two questions occur within the larger uh, section in the catechism that speaks of Christ as our mediator. So how, how does Christ function as our mediator? Well, one of the ways is that he, he's made under the law. He subjects himself to the law uh, and ultimately lives out um, the, the law perfectly, uh, not for himself, uh, but for his people as, as our representative. And he does so in ways that ultimately he has no power of, uh, over. For example, uh, one of the, the, the notes that Luke makes uh, in chapter two is that he's circumcised on the eighth day. You know, so here's another place where Jesus wasn't able to go and take himself to be circumcised on the eighth day. And yet, uh, in God's uh, providential superintendence of the work of the Messiah, Jesus fulfills the law. On the 40th day, Mary offered the proper sacrifices, um, the two dirtle does, speaking to their poverty, uh, hence born in a low condition. Um, again, he keeps the law. And he's made under the law and is submitted to the law. And all throughout Jesus's life, up and through to his crucifixion, he is fulfilling the law. He's fulfilling what the scripture speaks uh, concerning the Messiah. Uh, and in that regard, He's, he is doing this as our representative, uh, identified with us in such a way that, that he is able, ultimately, uh, to have that righteousness imputed. The, the satisfaction of the law is going to be imputed to those who put their trust in him. And that's part of that glorious exchange that the Catechism speaks of, but also that Luther spoke of, uh, where he takes our sin upon himself. He gives us his righteousness, not just his righteousness related to the passion, which we sometimes call his passive righteousness, uh, but his active righteousness in regard to the law, having been made under the law, uh, having submitted himself to the law, that is actually imputed and transferred to the account of those who put their trust in him. So that word law comes up a lot, especially in Pauline epistles. And so we can understand, I think properly, right, that Jesus came and satisfied not just the moral law, the Ten Commandments were in its assembly comprehended, but also the ceremonial law, as you're referring to the circumcision on the eighth day. And um, so Christ satisfies the whole of the law for us. And so, you know, our, our justification is not found in our law keeping, but in his, that, that he was made under it 
and fully satisfied it. Yeah, precisely. Romans 10.4 talks about the fact that Christ is the end of the law. He's both the telos, the, uh, the, the, the purpose point of the law, uh, but he also brings those ceremonial laws and civil laws to an end in that he has satisfied them fully. The moral law continues on because in Jesus's own teaching, uh, he reaffirms that moral law and says, not a jot, not a tittle uh, will be done away with until the end of the age. And so, so that Romans 10, 4 passage really does get us to that point you just made. Philippians chapter 2, you've quoted it um, by memory already, and that really is our classic text for the humiliation of Christ. It's rich, it's worth meditating upon. Are there other scriptures in the New Testament that you would point our listeners to and say, hey, there's, there's a ton of devotional value here, and, and this is, these are places wherein the humiliation of Christ just jumps off the page. Where would you take us? Yeah. So one of the really interesting themes uh, that I love in John's gospel uh, is the language of the son of man coming down. Uh, If you actually do a little word search, maybe go to esv.org and kind of type that in. Uh, No one's ascended into heaven, but the one who's descended from heaven, uh, the the son of man will be lifted up. The son of man has come down. You track that language in the gospel of John. It's striking how often that language shows up. And it speaks to the fact of condescension, of humiliation, uh, that Jesus, uh, having been, having known glory with the father, uh, willingly left, uh, didn't grasp that glory, veiled it for a time. Uh, that you get a little peak of it on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, but but comes down among the people of God and tabernacles among us. He uh, takes on human flesh and dwells among us. Uh, and so tracing that language to the Gospel of John, that's one of those rich devotional places for God's people uh, in terms of humiliation. Uh, another, another place, though, really is the language, that same language shows up in Ephesians. Um, how, uh, quoting from the Psalms, no one is, uh, ascended into heaven, but he who is descended. Um, what does it mean that he's gone to the lower places of the earth? Uh, but now he has ascended, uh, and has gained gifts for his people. And what does he give? He gives, you know, officers, uh, ultimately and various gifts for the maturing of his church. So once you start kind of paying attention to that descending, ascending language, uh, you begin to trace out some of these, um, key texts that will show up in relationship to humiliation. So we're going to shift gears in just a second to exaltation. Uh, but, you know, they're kind of like salt and pepper. We don't want to speak of the humiliation of Christ without speaking of his exaltation and nor of his exaltation without his humiliation. Why is it so important that we keep these together? Well, because um, Jesus's work is not just humiliation. Uh, <laughs> it really is exaltation. Uh, and it's the same thing, you know, in the same way that when we talk about the work of Christ, uh, we always w- should link together crucifixion and resurrection. Um, or, you know, I'll even talk in my preaching, I'll, I'll talk in terms of uh, uh, the cruci- crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, you know, holding these great acts of what Christ has done for us together. Um, and so, yeah, they, these things, they, in order to accomplish our salvation, yes, Jesus died. That's, uh, and he died for us. That's, that's gospel and necessary. Uh, but in many ways that, that gains us, um, 
certainly it gains us forgiveness of sin uh, and it gains us uh, righteous status. Uh, but what actually gives us hope <laughs> is, is the other side, is resurrection and exaltation and ultimately return. And it's notable then in Romans 5 to 8, uh, Paul links those two things together. Um, he talks about since we've been justified by faith, um, by our Lord Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Uh, but then he goes on to talk about the hope of glory that we have. Uh, and really, the, the, the points that he's going to make throughout chapters 5 through 8 all are connected to future glory. And that future glory is secured for us by the resurrection and ascension of Christ. Uh, and so, yes, very much want to hold those two things together. It, it's notable uh, that, that evangelicals in general and, and even Presbyterians to a degree have failed to do that. I remember going to Westminster Seminary uh, where I worked on my PhD and, uh, and how Dr. Gaffin, uh, Dick Gaffin really impacted me personally, theologically uh, with his book, Resurrection and Redemption, which really emphasized uh, the, the resurrection as, as central to the gospel, uh, which for an evangelical kid kind of coming out of broad evangelicalism into this Presbyterian world, was like, what? What are we talking about? It's Christ crucified, right? Like, well, yes, Christ crucified. We're not denigrating the crucifixion of Christ. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But but Christ crucified goes together with the resurrected Christ. Good Friday goes together with Easter Sunday. Uh, and so these two things really do hang together uh, and need to be, uh, like you said, salt and pepper. You pass those things together. Uh, and, and even in our evangelism, uh, we need to evangelize in that in that way, which is why, um, you know, in thinking about uh, you know even simple evangelistic devices like the Romans Road, uh, which I've used over and over and over again over uh, thirty five years uh, since I was first called to preach when I was sixteen years old. Um, that's a helpful tool as long as part of our presentation emphasizes that this this one who. Um, Romans 5, 8, uh, and this is love, not that, you know, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, but, but Christ was also raised for our justification. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? Verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10 of Romans. So yeah, making sure those things hang together, even in our evangelism is really, really important. And to move on to the, the ascended Christ, you've already kind of made this point, but just to really stress it, uh, it seems like like you were already hinted at. Most Christians, when they think of Christ being exalted, they only go to Easter, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. So what is the significance and the importance of Christ being ascended, that he has ascended into heaven? Um, and why why is that significant and why is that practically important uh, for Christians today? Well, so part of the reason why it's important is because the Bible talks about it, not just in Acts, but especially in Ephesians 1. Um, when Paul is praying in Ephesians 1, uh, starting verse 15, extending verse really through chapter 3, verse 21, uh, but, but in that first chapter, um, he talks about how the, this immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, to, towards us who believe is displayed. Uh, and well, it's displayed first in Jesus. That, that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places, uh, far above all rule or principalities and power and over every name that is named. Um, and Christ is actually now presently ruling over all things for the church. Um, 
And so, so the ascended Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, is in fact ruling, um, ruling over his world uh, and ruling over his church. Uh, so, so, I mean, for, for Christians, from a practical standpoint, that's hugely important. I mean, he's ruling over our world, uh, which means uh, COVID, uh, racial unrest, uh, political controversy, uh, all the things that the triple whammy of 2020, uh, none of that has taken Jesus by surprise. Uh, King Jesus is still ruling over his world. Um, but, you know, sometimes evangelicals will slip into language as though the devil is ruling over the world. Uh, you know, we they misunderstand the language of the prince of the power of the air, which shows up in Ephesians chapter two, uh, as though somehow God has ceded this world over to the devil. Uh, and there's nothing that can be further from the truth, not just in terms of uh, kind of big God's sovereignty, but especially in terms of the ascension and exaltation of Jesus. King Jesus is ruling over all the powers, and he's doing so for the church, uh, which means then, secondly, the, the second way that encourages us as believers uh, is that Jesus won. And he's because Jesus has already won um, through his resurrection, triumphing over death, Jesus wins, uh, which means then because we are his body, the church wins not in some kind of crazy, colonialistic, triumphalistic kind of way, um, but in terms of uh, we don't have to fear. Uh, we don't have to fear the forces arrayed against us, whether the spiritual forces arrayed against us, uh, whether, you know, if God forbid, uh, genuine impression comes to Christians in the United States of America, as our brothers and sisters know it in China and in India, Pakistan, Iraq, Iran, and other places. In the end, because Jesus is one and Jesus wins, the church wins. Um, but it even comes down to a really practical level. One of the prayers that I always pray every month at our session meeting uh, is Jesus says, you were ascended at the right hand of the Father. And even now are holding session over your church. So hold session in our midst now. Rule and overrule all that we say and do so that your will might be known and your name be glorified. I pray that every month to remind us that Jesus is king of the church. <laughs> uh, and he hasn't given that over to pastors and elders uh, to work their will indiscriminately uh, or somehow divorced from the will of King Jesus. Um, Jesus is actually ruling in our midst. All too often in session meetings, we forget that. Uh, and we really actually think that we're in charge. Um, but this is Jesus's church. Uh, we really do believe uh, that he's the king of it, uh, which means we need to listen for his voice and we need to deal well with one another because he rules through elders. Our polity all really very much depends on this idea uh, that Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father. There's one last way, though, that's very practical for believers. Um, Romans 8 talks about the fact that because Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Um, and so Jesus, even now, uh, the resurrected and ascended Christ, is, is interceding. He's praying. Um, he's, he's mediating. Uh, those three offices of prophet, priest, king are being exercised right now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Uh, and in his priestly role, uh, he, he, he intercedes for us, which is why the writer of the Hebrews will say in chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus saves us to the uttermost. Well, how does he do that? Yeah, from beginning to end, uh, he ensures that we persevere because he is interceding at the right hand of God the Father for us. Yeah, that is, that is good encouragement. And another piece of this exaltation is the second coming, you know, that he will come back to judge the living dead. So what's Usually, particularly us reformers, we kind of, it's all going to pan out in the end. 
um, which doesn't get us leaning forward as it should. So maybe, you know, similar question, what is the significance of the exaltation of Christ, particularly with the second coming of Jesus? Well, yeah. So for those who hold an amillennial quote unquote position, um, we've, we've tended to not kind of hold on to the idea of the imminent return of Christ. Uh, we've kind of seeded that idea to our premillennial brothers and sisters. Uh, but there's nothing that would be incompatible with an amillennial position when it comes to the last things uh, that, that right now Jesus is ruling over his church um, and the imminent return of Christ. Jesus can return at any minute. I mean, that to me, that's, that's the clear implication of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, um, that his coming will be as a thief. Uh, we won't expect it. Uh, but we ought to be ready for it. So to use your language, we need to be, uh, you know, looking forward to, as John said, come Lord Jesus, um, we're ready for you to come. Maranatha, come quickly. Um, and so, you know, when the, the, the reason why we, we long for the return of Jesus is we long for the wrong to be made right. Um, we long for justice. Uh, you know, that's been, uh, justice has been one of those words uh, that uh, has been bandied about a lot this year. Um, we, we, we want to live presently in a world characterized by justice. Uh, God's word uh, promises us that, that King Jesus ensures that justice happens. But justice will finally happen. Uh, God's world will be just and right when Jesus returns. Uh, and so uh, part of the parable of the important widow in Luke 18, she's, she's knocking on the door of the judge demanding justice. And Jesus says, so shall it be for my, my followers who pray asking the Father for justice. He will do it quickly. Uh, we long for justice ultimately, uh, and it will come. This world will be just. It will be right when Jesus returns, and then we will know wholeness, shalom, peace. Um, justice and peace do embrace in the end. Uh, we long to see them embrace more and more in the present world, but when Jesus returns, um, that's when things will be set to rights again. And so every believer should have that as their longing. Uh, it should factor into the way we think about life in this world, um, you know, God is going to bring about uh, a full and final version of the new heavens and new earth. He, yes, he's making all things new, um, but he, he will finally do that when Jesus returns again. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Lucas. Thanks for joining us. Oh, one last thing, uh, question. Uh, we, we were trying to, with this podcast, is really encouraging conversation. Usually Christians, even myself, you know, somebody like yourself or an author speaks or a pastor and we kind of stop thinking and conversing about this. So what are some resources that you would give our listeners to continue to think about Christ in these ways? Well, the two best books that I've ever read on the work of Christ were both uh, by Donald McLeod, uh, one called the work of Christ, uh, or excuse me, the person of Christ. Um, and then the other, uh, which is though it deals with person, he deals with the work of Christ some in that book. And then the other called the cross of Christ. Um, both of those are IVP books uh, and um, they're excellent. Uh, I've never, until I read those two books, I, I don't recall reading a book of quote unquote systematic theology uh, that actually led me to worship. Uh, mm-hmm. And there were various points in both of those books where tears came to my eyes and I just simply bowed in my head and worship. Um, don't be put off by the idea that there's somehow theology. They're incredibly accessible, um, remarkably easy to read. McLeod is a brilliant writer, uh, and uh, I would recommend those highly. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Lucas, for joining us on the podcast today. I'm going to put a plug in for your book on Presbyterian church history. It was a page turner. Uh, Somebody who can make Presbyterian church history a page turner is a gifted writer indeed. So thank you for your labors and thanks for your time today. Thanks so much. And thank you uh, to our listeners for joining us once again. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Until we talk next time, keep it short. We're inconsistent, Christ exaltation. Christ's exaltation consisted in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and coming to judge the world at the last day. Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Christ's exaltation consisteth in His rising again From the dead on the third day In ascending up into heaven In sitting at the right hand of God the Father And coming to judge the world at the last